0: Last time we were in Philemon, we came upon these remarkable words given to us by the Apostle Paul. Where he says to Philemon, I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me sent him back to you in person, that is sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, that your goodness should not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to, to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. and debates have gone on throughout history about the question of man's will and whether or not it's free. When we came to this verse last time, we talked about the fact that no man's will is ultimately free by virtue of sin, all are slaves of sin, and are therefore the bond slaves of sin, until they are freed in Christ. And now that we have a will that is free, and now that we're free in Christ, we are now the bond slaves of Christ. And now it is our privilege to serve our Lord and render that freedom as unto Him rather than doing just whatever we wish to do. In fact, our desires have been changed so that it is our joy to serve Christ. This is the very appeal that Paul is making to Philemon. Paul wants Philemon to do the right thing. And so he makes an appeal to Philemon to draw from the treasury of grace that has been poured out to him as a redeemed man, a man who now has love and faith, as he talks about in verses 4 through 7, a love and, and faith that has impacted not only his own life, but it has impacted the lives of those around him. And he's basically saying to Philemon, I want you to draw from the treasury of grace that has been poured out inside of you and to employ that grace. In this manner of receiving Onesimus back, no longer as a slave, but now as a beloved brother. Brethren, there is a great difference, and this is the point we need to understand and retain as we move forward in Philemon. There is a great difference between compulsory servitude and genuine servitude. And I think we all understand it. How many times have you ever done something that you knew you had to do, but you weren't really invested in doing that thing? I mean, as a kid, I was told to take out the trash, and I'll tell you what, my heart was not in it, okay? That was my errand every day I had to do And half the time, I just really didn't want to do it, but I did it because I knew I had to do it. But God calls us to a different standard. He does not delight in compulsory servitude, he delights in genuine servitude that is from the heart. And that's what grace produces in the child of God. A desire to do that which honors and pleases our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hosea 6.6 6, we have these words where the Lord says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God is not pleased when we come to him and just do what we have to do without a heart of devotion on like him. I believe that this is something that we need to remember and understand. And in view of this principle, I, I would like for us to consider this very idea even as we approach the Lord's table Again, God is very, very interested in our attitude, in the heart within us. Why does it we do what we do? In fact, I will just say to you, every time we ever do anything for anyone else or for the Lord ultimately, we have to ask the question, why am I doing this? What are my motives? Am I really serving God in this or am I doing this to be seen by others? Am I really serving God in this or am I just doing it because I know I have to, but my heart really is in it? I believe that that issue of checking the heart and evaluating the heart and our motives is something that we need to do. We need to consider our attitude in our servitude always. And in view of this and in preparation of the Lord's table, I would like to direct your attention to a text that we'll be considering here this morning. And yes, I'm going to shift a little bit for the sake of the Lord's table to Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now stop right there. Have this attitude. He's not talking about our actions. He's talking about the inner man. He's saying, Let this be your attitude your motive, your intent on the inside, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself, taking the form of a doer, a bondsman, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. (laughs) Brethren, we are all called to live as the bond slaves of God. And we have no greater example before us than that of Jesus Christ, who in his humility Empty himself, taking the form of a dude, a bondslave. Now, there are important distinctions that we're going to be observing as we consider this idea of imitating Christ who came as a bondslave. First of all, I want us to consider Christ's example as a sinless bondslave. Now, this is an important distinction. Christ was a bondslave as one who was without sin. But we are not without sin. This is actually the second point of observation. Our attitude is the redeemed, we're going to consider our attitude as the redeemed bond slaves of Christ who do battle with sin. This is the second thing we need to consider. Christ was a bond slave in a sinless capacity. We are called to be bond slaves, but we have to battle against sin. And thirdly and finally, I must consider how it is that we are to serve the Lord according to his worthiness always. In other words, whatever we render unto the Lord, whatever servitude we render to one another, we must always keep in view our Lord's matchless worth as being the, the, the thing that measures and evaluates and tests our own servitude. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But let's first consider together Christ's example as a sinless Slave. Again, the text of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, helps us to understand that Jesus, the Son of God, who became flesh, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond slave, and he was made in the likeness of men. Notice this. Philippians chapter 2 helps us to understand that the very... Prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled in virtue, by virtue of his coming as a bondslave. slave. Isaiah 42 in verse 1 tells us, by prophecy, this, behold my servant, speaking of the Messiah, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. This is the very thing that was prophesied. This is the very thing that has been fulfilled in a person and work of Christ who emptied himself and took the form of a bond slave and was made in the likeness of man. Now think with me for a moment this language which says in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 2 that he emptied himself. He emptied himself. We have to understand that when we talk about Christ emptying himself and taking the form of a bond slave and being made in the likeness of men, this does not mean that Jesus somehow became less than God. This is actually the the idea, this notion of the kenosis of Christ, the the, the word here, ekenosin, this speaks of him setting aside or willingly setting aside the full use of his deity and his power. In his incarnation, but it is not to be interpreted as him becoming anything less than God. In fact, God can never be become anything less than God. It's really kind of a silly idea to begin with, but we have to understand the idea of the kenosis of Christ is a voluntary setting aside of the full use of his power and deity. How many times have you seen wartime images? of a soldier who is armed to the hilt and has a rifle over his shoulder carrying a little child to safety. We see these all the time. Whenever there's some sort of war taking place and now that we have the internet and we have people taking pictures all the time it is a very common thing to see a soldier carrying a child to safety. In a sense they're, they're doing what we're talking about. They have the power and the ability and the firepower to kill people. And they have a war to do it because they're at war. But in the very moment that they carry a child to safety, they're using their power and strength not to destroy the enemy, but to give safety and protection to a little child. It's a rough picture, but when we think of the kenosis of Christ, think of it that way. The very Lord and Savior, who has the power to judge mankind, set aside all the full use of his power in order to bring redemption and deliverance to his people. Calvin says it this way, speaking of the kenosis of Christ. He says, Christ indeed could not divest himself of the Godhead, but he kept it concealed for a time that it might not be seen under the weakness of the flesh. Hence he laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. That's a good way of putting it. But all of this requires remarkable humility none of us in this room can comprehend the humility that was required for Christ to take on human flesh and to set aside the whole use of his power as God as the one who is very God so Paul in describing this he says says it this way in verse 6 although he existed in the morphe, the form of God he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the morphe that is the form of a servant. That word morphe speaks of the idea of the nature or character of something with emphasis upon both the internal and external form. In other words, it speaks of the idea of nature or character. And so Jesus, being fully God, took on the form and the essence and nature of humanity. And he did not lose his deity in that process, but he became God and man at the same time. I have to say to you that every time we have discussions in the seminary about the hypostatic union, that is, the union of God and man in the person and work of Christ, no one, in, again, in this room can fully understand this. This is one of the great mysteries of all of Holy Writ. But we look at this and we see this as true, and, and even though we cannot understand it fully, this is the reality of what our Savior did in coming to this world, to be our Redeemer. Augustine says it this way. He says, according to the form of a servant, he was made of a woman, made under the law, Galatians 4.4. According to the form of God, he and the Father are one, John 10.30. According to the form of a servant, he came not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him, John 6.38. According to the form of God, as the Father has life in himself, so has he also, given to the Son, to have life in himself, John 5.26. According to the form of a servant, his soul is sorrowful unto death. And, Father, he says, if it is possible, let this touch pass. According to the form of God, he is the true God and eternal life. (coughs) According to the form of a servant, he became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Deity, humanity, both in their full form, all in one person, the Lord Jesus. Christ and marvelous. And here's the beauty of his servitude. His servitude was a servitude that was perfectly from the heart. It was entirely out of his love for the Father. In fact, he says this, speaking of the joyful submission that he rendered unto the Father as the one who came to serve as a boss He says this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Brother, whenever you are famished, you're hungry, you sit down before a meal and you have that plate in front of you. And if you're really hungry, I'm sure that there are not a whole lot of things that are going to draw you away from that plate of food, right? In fact, it is in that moment that you have that great hunger that you start to eat that food and you see, you experience the satisfaction of consuming that meal. Our bodies were designed to take in food. And it's a very satisfying experience to do that. This is what Jesus is explaining. He's saying to us that his joy and satisfaction is to do the will of the Father. And there is no greater joy and satisfaction. And all of this is a product of his serving out of love for the Father. In John 14 and verse 31. Jesus says this to the disciples. He says, But that the world may know that I love the Father. By the way, how many times have we talked about the worldwide message of being the gospel, which it is, but he says, I want the world to know that I love the Father. And then he says this, and as the Father gave me, as, as the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. His commandment, his will, is what I do. Why? Because I love the Father. That's why I do it. And it is out of this inviolable resolve to do the will of the Father that he says this in John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We have no greater example of what it means to serve as a long than that of the Lord. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for men. It is because of the servitude that we now have. It is because of the servitude that we have redemption. It is because of the servitude and humility that we have forgiveness of sin. I, I have to say this. We have to get past Society's fear of the word slave. Our own culture here in America, we've ruined the concept of what this term even means, frankly, I would say But we have to get past this. Why? Because the word, the word of God gives us this word slave, bond slave, as an important term to help us to think of the idea of serving the will of another. Because that's the very heart of what we're talking about when we talk about being a bond slave. The Savior did the will of the Father as a bondslayer. We are called to, to serve our master and serve his will in invitation of Christ. This is why when Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him. For the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as doulos, bond slaves of God. How do we use our freedoms? We use them correctly. As those who are now the bondslaves of God. Not serving our own will, but serving the will of our master in everything. But we have to keep this in mind. We serve as bondslaves as those who battle with sin. Christ didn't battle with sin. His servitude was perfect, it was sinless. It was without defection, of and so even though we imitate Christ, we have to remember there's a transcendent reality regarding his servitude. His servitude and his work is meritorious, and it is our only hope. Our servitude is not meritorious. Our servitude is not our hope. Uh, I'm not going to get to heaven because of my servitude. I'm going to get to heaven because I place my faith and trust in the one whose servitude was sinless and perfect. This then brings us to the second point. This brings us to what our attitude should be as the redeemed bond slaves of God. We're to imitate Christ as as bond slaves, but we do so as imperfect creatures. If we don't get that distinction straight, we may end up confusing the question of what our servitude is worth. Look at me at Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 7. Luke 17, beginning in verse 7. There are many occasions in which Jesus taught the disciples about their responsibility and calling to serve as the bondslaves of God. This particular example is rather compelling. it helps us to understand what our attitude must be as bond slaves he says this in verse 7 which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field come immediately and sit down to eat but will he not say to him prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk and after, afterward, you will and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So too, here's the conclusion. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we ought to have done. Think about that. That's a remarkable statement. We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. One of the reasons why this is a very important text is because this follows after Jesus had to rebuke the disciples. Because back in chapter 9, they were doing what we talked about before. They were actually arguing amongst themselves about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. The disciples did not understand the principle of servitude. They were trying to advance themselves in their merit and servitude before the Lord. But the Lord said to them, he said, he who is least among you, this is the one who is great. This is the imagery, the picture of what it means to be a servitude. They're not trying to crawl up the ladder and get yourself seen and known by everybody. If you really want to be a servant, a servant, you need to be the least and do the, the servitude and do the labor of, of one who is genuinely a servant for God. So when he says that our attitude should be like the servant who says, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we have ought to have done. My translation uses the word unworthy. The Greek word is ekreoi. Unworthy is a good translation. The New Revised Standard Version has the word worthless, which I think is problematic. And I think it's actually confusing. But the idea here is the idea of something that is unprofitable. Unprofitable. It speaks of the idea of being without such qualities as deserve praise or commendation. In other words... The attitude of a servant should be that, well, I'm rendering service, but it's not for my praise. It's not for my commendation. It's not for my exaltation. Or it's not to be seen as that which is meritorious. Instead, the service that I render unto God is that which is owed to me. This is a very important distinction. The idea of the slave here in Luke 17 saying we are unworthy slaves really reflects, I think, the reality of the fact that we are, in fact, fallen sinful creatures. Because we don't establish our own merit. We we can't. Our works are as filthy rags, our righteousness are counted before the eyes of God as filthy rags. In fact, the same term is used in Romans chapter 3 and verse 12 where it says that all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. Why why is humanity rendered as useless? Why are the activities and deeds of mankind rendered as useless? It's because everything that we do is fraught with sin. That's right. Even at our best, nothing that we do adds to God because we cannot add to God. So, when David says, and this is really the heart attitude of a genuine servant, a genuine redeemed servant, when David says to the Lord, Thou art my Lord, I have what? No good besides thee. This is really the, the concept of what we're talking about. As the servants of God, we must understand that any good that is in us has been given to us by our master. And so, therefore, anything that we do, ultimately does not establish our merit, but it is our master who has established our merit, and so the service that we render to him is that which is due to him. R.C.H. Linsky says it this way. He says, the sense of or the Greek word akre, "akreoi," says this, although unprofitable is not an exact translation, but only the best we can do, these slaves were deserving of no special thanks because... They have no special claims on the Lord. Again, the service that we render to God isn't adding anything to Him, nor is it doing anything to establish our standing before God. It is just simply service that we render unto Him as that which is duty. And this is clear and evident when we get to verse 10 of Luke 17. Again, notice the language. The Lord says, so you too, speaking to the disciples, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we, and here's the word, ought, ought to have done. Now this word, Philo in the Greek, speaks of the idea of indebtedness, and this is a key concept. Debt of us. Brother, we're debtors to God. We owe Him. That doesn't mean that we can repay Him, but it means that we owe Him. Our sin puts us in a, a negative column in terms of where we stand before Him. In fact, it's, it's a really important term, not only in terms of what it means, but this particular word is in what's called the emphatic position. And so the idea of the response of the servant is this, is that we are continually being in debt, if I could translate it this way, we are continually being in debt, and therefore we labor to do the work out of that debt. Or Young's literal translation puts it this way in order to emphasize the emphatic nature of this term. It says this, that which we owed to do, we have done. The idea here is that the servant serves with a view to the debt that he owes to his master. What he's thinking about is the worthiness of the master and the debt that he owes to that master. That's his focus. And you know what that does? That eliminates all efforts by the servant to say, hey, look at the service side. Look what I did. Dear master, look at me and be impressed by what I have done. Everything, every attitude like that is a limit decimated by the language of this text. So therefore, rather than thinking of our worthiness, we should be focused on God's worthiness. Again, as we contemplate our debt to Him. When I say that we're indebted to God, I'm, I'm not making anything up. I mean, look at uh, Matthew 18 for example where the Lord says for this reason the king of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves and when he had begun to settle them there there was brought to him one who owed and here's the word of Pharaoh then owed him 10,000 talents speaking of our debt to God in view of our sin and then the, the king forgave that debt out of mercy not because of merit not because he deserved it, but because of grace and mercy. 10,000 talents in the modern day is about $3.5 billion. Who's going to repay that? Right? You don't sit there. We look at the number 10,000 talents and think, well, I don't know. Maybe I could pay that off. No. The idea is you're never paying this off. You cannot pay back to God what you owe to him. But we're still to render service unto him. Deal with it. Not thinking we pay it back, but understanding we are debtors to God. And I say to you, this attitude, this understanding transforms the way in which we render service to God. And as I said, this attitude obliterates the notion of our walking around speaking of the merit of our service. Remember in Matthew chapter 7. how it is that the Lord Jesus Christ rebuked those who spoke of the merit of their service. He says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, merit, merit, merit. Look at our resume, Lord. Look what we did for you. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. You can go to the parable of the the talents in Matthew chapter 25. The the good stewards who rendered their service under their master were unaware of the fact that they were doing something good for the master. They were simply doing that which was due to the master, and the master commended them for their service. Or even in the parable of the sheep and the goats in the same chapter, again, the sheep. Rendered service as unto Christ, being unaware of what they were doing. They were keeping tabs. They were just serving. They were just serving. Brethren, when we sing the hymn, Alas and did my Savior leave, it says in the fifth verse, But drops of grief can never pay the debt of love I here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. I cannot repay what has been given to me. But I gave my life to the Lord, understanding that this is my privilege. It is what I ought to do. To give in myself my service and to leave it to him, to tabulate and account for, for whatever I do. Because none of it is meritorious. My only merit is found in the great servant, Jesus Christ, who died in my stead. Calvin says this in Luke 17. In verse 10, he says, We perform due service by which no favor is deserved. And yet those good works which the Lord has bestowed upon us, he counts ours also and declares that they are not only acceptable to him, but that he will recompense them. It is ours in return to be animated by this great promise and to keep up our courage that we may not grow weary in well-doing but feel duly grateful for the great kindness of God. There cannot be a doubt that everything in our works which deserves praise is owing to divine grace and that there is not a particle of it which we can properly ascribe to ourselves. He then says this, if we truly and seriously acknowledge this, Not only confidence, but every idea of merit vanishes. We have no merit. He alone has it. As the great bond who was made in the likeness of men and died on the cross in our sin. So Matthew Henry says this, the best servants of Christ... Mm -hmm. Even when they do the best services, must humbly acknowledge that they are unprofitable servants. Though they are not those unprofitable servants that bury their talents and shall be cast into the outer darkness, yet as to Christ, and any advantage that can accrue to Him by their services, they are unprofitable. Our goodness extendeth not unto God, nor if we are righteous, He is the better. God cannot be a gainer by our services. Let me say that again. God cannot be a gainer by our services. He's not improved by anything that we do, in other words. And therefore cannot be made a debtor by that. He doesn't owe us anything, in other words. He has no need of us, nor can our services make any addition to his perfections. It becomes us, therefore, to call ourselves unprofitable servants to call his service a profitable service for God is happy without us but we aren't undone without him <clears throat> Brother, when I say things like God does not need us he doesn't need anything it's not putting anybody down this is a fact God doesn't need anything he is perfect in every aspect of his life again. he simply made us and he redeemed us out of his own good pleasure and for his own glory, but not out of need, as if God could somehow be improved by any of this. And this brings us to the final observation. brother. we're called to serve the Lord according to his word Again, I want to make sure that we understand this point. When we render service unto God, we need to think about his worthiness. We're unprofitable servants. We're to Him, And as we serve, we need to think about not some imagined merit that we're creating or, or doing in terms of what we're doing. We need to be thinking about the perfection and worthiness and merit of the one that we serve. And mark this. When we get to glory, we're going to be singing about that reality. His worth forever. This is not just one sermon we're going to talk about here in one morning. We're going to be rehearsing this forever. And that's why in Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, we read that the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy! Worthy art thou our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for thou didst create all things and because of thy will they existed and were created. He is worthy. We are unprofitable slaves. But what a privilege it is that we can serve him at all. And that we can serve him now with new hearts and that we can serve him with the will that has been set free, not to serve our own pleasures, but to serve the pleasure of our master who redeemed us. Brethren, I offer this as preparation for this tale. Because the apostle Paul warns against the dangers of approaching this table without a careful consideration of what we He says in verse 27, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup Savior is worthy. Our Savior is worthy so as to receive from us our devotion, love, adoration, and confession that it is His merit and His merit, that is our So may it be that we would, in fact, brethren, serve the Lord in a way that honors Him, even as we partake of this table. Let me ask the all pleasures, please, to come forward.